Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this evening, for the gift of your word, the gift of life, the gift of community and fellowship. We pray, God, that you would bless us each in the ways we most need it as we're gathered here, and bless us specifically as we approach you in sacred scripture to hear your voice, hear your words convicting and challenging us, comforting us and guiding us. Help us to be open, prepared, and receptive to whatever message you have in store for each one of us tonight. We know, Lord, that you are desiring to speak to each one of us individually. You knew we would be here tonight, and so we pray that we would be willing, open, and ready to receive whatever you have for us. Remove from us any distractions, worries, unfocus, negativity, anything that might derail us and our attention being devoted to your word tonight, and allow us to experience you speaking to us both in the words of sacred scripture and also in the words of our neighbor. We lay this time at your feet, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome once again. Uh, This Sunday, we are celebrating the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time, and the gospel for this Sunday is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And so we're going to read this twice through, as we usually do. First time through, we're just going to get a picture for what is being said. So this is shortly after our reading uh, from last week. There's just a few verses in between that we skipped over, but Jesus has just gone over the parable of the tenants from this past Sunday. And he's still in this kind of parable discourse with the the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, with his disciples as well, in Jerusalem after he's first entered the city. Okay, so think of this. This is Palm Sunday. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, flipped over some tables, cursed a fig tree, irritated all of the elders in the city, and now he's been railing at them secretly in the form of parables. And it's clear that they have now begun to see, in verse 45, when the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees this is of chapter 21 heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were attempting to arrest him, they feared the crowds for they regarded him as a prophet. So that's exactly what's leading in. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're catching on. They know that Jesus is talking about them. What does Jesus do? Does he back off? No. He doubles down and he gives them this parable, which is sometimes talked about as two parables the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the wedding garment. So we're going to read verses 1 through 14 of Matthew 22. First time through now that you have an image of where Jesus is and who he's with, just get a sense for what is being said. The parable of the wedding feast. Jesus again, in reply, spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, 
I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. He said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet, and cast him into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't pull his punches here. He continues to criticize the Pharisees and the chief priests, continues to speak about the neglect they've had responding to the call and invitation of God. The second time through as we read this, now I invite you, now that we know a little bit about the context, to listen, how is this speaking to you specifically? Okay, if these words are directed to you, what is resonating with you? What relates to what's going on in your own personal life? Could be a single word, a phrase, doesn't have to have anything to do with what the parable means theologically, but just something sparks uh, a memory, a thought, a reflection in you. Pay attention to those details, those words or phrases that resonate with you. Bring them to prayer. Why is this standing out to me? What are you trying to say to me, Lord? Okay, this is our second final time through Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus again, in reply, spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent other servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, bad and good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he saw a man there, not dressed in a wedding garment. He said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he was reduced to silence. 
Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet, and cast him into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look over that passage and the things that stood out to you. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what that is. But for those of us here, take a few moments and then share with those at your table what stood out to you and why. Why did it resonate with you? And any questions this reading posed for you. And we'll take about 10 minutes or so to do that. And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions and answers. So take about the next 10 minutes. So a few things that I think uh, are helpful in this passage. Um, First of all, showing how the imagery here shows up elsewhere in Scripture. So we have here the image of a wedding feast, okay? The wedding feast imagery shows up all throughout Scripture. I'll read for you a few places. One place is in Proverbs 9. Listen to these six, first six verses of Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up her seven columns. She has prepared her meat, mixed her wine. Yes, she has spread her table. She has sent out her maidservants. She calls from the heights out over the city. Let whoever is naive turn in here. To any who lack sense, I say, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness that you may live. Advance in the way of understanding. So in the wisdom literature, we have this idea that wisdom is setting up a banquet to go out into the streets to bring anyone, anyone and everyone, to come to the wedding feast, especially those who are foolish, so that they will know the truth. They will become wise. Then we have this again in Isaiah chapter 25. I have so many tabs, I can't find where I did it. Oh, it's which is the first reading for this Sunday as well. Isaiah 25 verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines, juicy rich food and pure choice wines. Later on in Zephaniah, the prophet, who we rarely hear from, verses 7 and 8, especially in verse 8, but I'm going to read partway through verse 7. Yes, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all who dress in foreign attire. And then especially in Revelation, after all of this is proclaimed, in Revelation 19, this is what the great multitude in heaven is proclaiming in Revelation 19. They say, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. She was allowed to wear a bright, clean linen garment. And then there's a nice little footnote here from the narrator who puts in parentheses and says, by the way, the linen garment represents the righteous deeds of the holy ones tells us exactly what the linen garment means. So it's very convenient for us. So we have this imagery of the wedding feast or the feast, being invited to this feast of choice food, of, of wine, to experience either a growth in wisdom, a knowledge of the truth, some kind of transformative relationship, and it's indicative of the prophesied imagery of heaven in the book of Revelation. This is what heaven is going to be like. And this is similar to places in Scripture, namely in Ephesians chapter 5, when our relationship with God is compared to that of a wedding. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her, to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church 
in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so this comparison of marriage is our spiritual life, that we are the bride of Christ who is in relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus. And so anytime there's this marital imagery, it not only applies to these covenants of the Old Testament, but applies to us as well. Okay, so just like last week's parable, there are multiple ways you can interpret this passage. And we don't want to fall into the trap of seeing like, okay, every particular detail means something specific. Okay? But we have to look at it through the lens of what did it mean when Jesus proclaimed it? What other meaning does it take on when Matthew wrote it down and in the context he was in? And what meaning does it take on for us? Okay, so when Jesus proclaimed this, you have the king who is always God. You have the son who is always Jesus. Jesus himself actually says in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, if you remember this, he answers the Pharisees. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's already identified himself as the bridegroom in this gospel. So anytime we have this marital or bride and bridegroom imagery, we should automatically think of Jesus. The guests, the guests in this initial part are predominantly Israel, the people with whom God has made a covenant with. He's reached out to them. He's invited them to enter into relationship with him, to be in a covenant with him. Marriage is a covenant. And so that's why this imagery is often used. But what do they do? They deny this invitation. They break these covenants with God. We see that all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, over and over again. And we do the same thing. We break our relationship with God. But Jesus is saying, up until this point, this is what has happened so far. Now, at this point, you could interpret the rest in two different ways. At this point... God has sent, in the history of Israel, God sends prophets, right? People to proclaim the truth. And how are they treated? Just like we read last week, they are mistreated, they are murdered, they are tortured, they are killed. That's what happens to the prophets. And so what happens? The destruction of Jerusalem and the taking of the Hebrew people into exile. So what the imagery Jesus is using here would be very familiar history for the Jewish people. Right? But however, when Matthew writes this, this is after the fact. Also prophesying to the fact that now we are being sent out to minister to the Gentiles, to go out into the streets and find the good and bad alike, to find everyone. And that's exactly what happens in the church, right? When the church establish, establishes, it's not just for the Jewish people anymore, it's for all people. And so they're sent out, Christian missionaries, to go out to the ends of the earth to invite people into relationship with God. And yet... Once everyone responds, there is still this expectation of response, that we come properly disposed, properly clothed in our relationship with God. And so the good and bad, the people who come, that kind of represents the church. That we're, we encompass a place for the good and bad to gather and to hopefully learn how to put on the righteousness of God. That's the language scripture uses all the time. Put on the armor of God. Put on the new self and put the old self away in Ephesians and in Galatians as well, to put on the new self, namely Jesus Christ, in Galatians 3.27. And so all of these ways in which we can see this imagery of the wedding garment as indicative of a transformational relationship needed. And so even though everyone is welcome, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to respond to that relationship. And the same thing can be said for you and for me. We've all been invited, right? Every single person, Jesus died for every single person's sins. And everyone, hopefully at some point in their life, has extended an invitation of knowing that and coming into relationship with him. But we, however, have to respond. We, however, have to clothe ourselves in righteousness. We have to live a certain way. 
And so that's the imagery of this, pa of this passage, kind of the analogy, the parable that's being used, how to kind of pick it apart. And so I think some questions that are evoked in me as I read this are, uh, what distracts you from the invitation? What distracts you from the invitation to be in deeper relationship with God? I mean, look at the, the things that are here. Some people just blatantly refuse. I just don't want that. Don't need it in my life. Some people ignore it because they don't see it's that important. It's not a priority in my life right now. I'll do that later when I have more time, or I really need to focus on X or Y. And some people, they get distracted by their business. Monetary possessions, earthly attachments, materialism, paying more attention to what other people think than what matters to God. And then some people respond with hostility. You see this all the time, especially in our world and kind of the cancer, cancel culture that operates. At the second someone professes faith, it's threatening to other people who don't profess that same way of life. And so instead of allowing that message to be received and maybe challenge them to transform, they respond with hatred, hostility. How dare you say that to me? How dare you shove your beliefs down my throat? Much more commonplace today. And so this also applies to us and our life. So what of those distracts you? Or maybe it's something else. What prevents you from seeing that invitation of God? Because this parable, brothers and sisters, this is a warning against incomplete conversion. I'm going to say that again. This is a warning against incomplete conversion. Okay? Conversion means to turn. And it's one thing to turn away from sin. But it's a whole other thing to turn away from sin and then also to turn toward Jesus. So if I'm walking, let's say, down a tunnel, and I realize it's real dark down there, and I don't want to keep going. I think this is a bad way for me to go. I can turn away, but then I can just stare at the wall. And I can just be like, well, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. And I think that's kind of the initial conversion that a lot of people experience. They recognize, I, my life is not fulfilling. I'm doing things that are, I'm experiencing the destructive nature of my decisions, of sin, all of the suffering that comes with it. I don't want to be addicted to this anymore. I don't want to fall into sin anymore. And so they turn away from sin, but then they just get stuck. A real conversion is not just accepting the invitation and saying, okay, no more sin. I'm going to be forgiven of that. But it's also clothing ourselves in righteousness and the wedding garment. And that involves turning completely 180 degrees away and beginning that, that journey back toward the path of grace, the path toward heaven. And so there's multiple steps, multiple facets. And at any point, we can stop. We might turn back to the wall. This is too hard. We might turn, not turn back all the way to sin, but we might pause in our, in our tracks. And so this is really an opportunity to ask ourselves, is my conversion at times incomplete? Have I truly accepted the invitation of Jesus to be the Lord of my life, to forgive my sins, to receive that grace through, yes, the sacrament of baptism, but also through my faith and my practice and my good works? And am I trying to clothe myself in righteousness by those good works, by building virtue, by consistently pursuing him and not just like not doing bad things? I think there'll be a lot of people at the end of their life who face Jesus and say, well, I was a good person. I didn't do fill in the blank. I, I didn't kill anybody. Like, that's not really that, like, 
at the end of the day, when it's like, how, how was your life? Like, did you do something really meaningful today? To be like, well, I didn't murder anyone, so I got that going for me. Like, what does that mean? Like, that's like a bare minimum of like being a member of a society, you know? Like, there's no real grace and strength in that. We have to go beyond that. I mean, it is a grace to not be murdering people. Don't misinterpret me. Like, don't just go think like, well, Matt said it's not that big of a deal. So, no, that's not what I mean. But, like, we have to think beyond just what we're not supposed to do, right? We can get in that habit. The Ten Commandments are not often translated in a way that's helpful to us because they're all thou shalt nots, right? Or not all of them, but most of them. And so we can tend to too readily focus on, like, what I'm not supposed to do. And that can lead to an incomplete conversion because a complete conversion is also about what am I called to do? And how am I pursuing Jesus in that way? And then when we do that, this also warns us against how do we extend that relationship to other people? Are sinners welcome in your mind, in your heart, when you see them in the church? Are you inviting them to the church? And if you see them, or if you have a conversation with them in a small group discussion, or in a morning ministry, or something like that, is our, is our immediate kind of tendency to correct to make sure they're behaving a certain way if they're here. Because we can jump the gun, brothers and sisters, and we can, we can lose souls if we're too quick to judge others or expect them to be at a certain place. We need to have that same invitation to extend the invitation to everyone, good and bad alike. And then as they respond to that invitation is when the conversion happens, not before. And so in the conversations we have, when people show up to our parish, when they show up to Mass, it's our first instinct, oh man, that person's not dressed really well. They're not dressed appropriate for Mass. Wow, that person looks really distracted. Why are they even here? Or is our thought, praise God, this person is here. I want them to know they're welcome back here. Now, I think, it was, uh, I think maybe it was Father Mike Schmidt's recent homily his podcast episode, but he, he brought up something that is often shared that I think is really beneficial. That there's this kind of, these three Bs of the process of conversion, and they are belong, believe, and behave. And a lot of times we jump to wanting people to believe and behave. When you're here, you need to behave a certain way. So people bring up things that are uh, different than what the church teaches. They're like, oh, no, no, you can't believe that. And we get very like defensive initially. And that, honestly, if that's someone's first time here experiencing or investigating church, they're probably going to be put off. It doesn't mean we shy away from sharing the truth, but it means like we have to recognize people are in a process. You and I didn't just wake up one day with a light bulb decision and completely change our beliefs and our patterns of behavior overnight. Right? It was a process. And so first, before people decide if they want to believe, they need to feel like they belong. They need to feel welcome. This wasn't the case generations ago, right? When you were raised in the faith, you showed up, you behaved, and you believed no matter what anyone said. And it wasn't really a question of whether, whether or not you belonged. It was just, you're in the church. This is what you're supposed to do, right? But now it's different. Now it's different. In modern society and the modern way that the church is trying to evangelize is a recognition that people today need to feel like they belong to something first before they'll decide if they want to believe. They need to feel welcome. They need to be loved and accepted as they are and accompanied until they develop that desire to know what is it that we teach? What is it that we believe? And then if they decide, yes, because of these relationships that have drawn me into deeper relationship with God, I want to know what it means to be a Christian. I want to believe. And only then when we understand what we believe will we start to behave differently. 
So we need to be cautious and not jump ahead in the steps of this story and be looking for the garments. We first have to recognize we're still extending the invitation. How do we treat other people? Because it's not up to us if a person is clothed in the right wedding garment, right? It's not up to the servant. It's not up to the attendant. It's up to the king. The king is the one who makes the observation. Nobody else. So we can't jump to that same conclusion. That's all I think I'll share for now. That hopefully gives you a little bit of context. I'm seeing these themes of wedding and feasts throughout the scripture and how this might apply for us today, both in our own faith, our own conversion, and how we evangelize others. So that being said, any comments, questions, things that stood out to you? Okay. Um, I thought it was interesting that in verse 14, there's the word chosen instead of like reply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I'm just asking if that has anything to do with, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't, but like the idea of predestination, like how does that, how do you separate those things? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause the idea of people being chosen almost has this idea that like they're predetermined, right? They're pre-selected to get to heaven. And we don't believe in that. We don't believe in what's called double predestination, which is something associated with Calvinism, that God has has known from the creation of the world from the very beginning who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. And he created people with a destiny to go to hell. And that's not what Catholics believe. We believe that God created every single person with the intent of them to be in heaven. But he also gave us the free will to choose because in order to love, you have to choose love. Okay, So we don't believe in that. We believe in what would be called single predestination, meaning that our destiny is all oriented toward heaven, but our choices affect whether or not we meet that destination. Okay, But we don't believe in actual Calvinistic predestination. So that word chosen uh, it does not mean that there are a select group of people that are kind of predetermined who are going to make that choice. But let's say if someone is chosen or selected, it means they're in a particular role. So like when I, you could, I could use the language, I chose my wife, right? I chose to marry my wife. She still had the choice on her part, but only one person could kind of fit that role, right? And there was this kind of sense of, you know, I'm not choosing anybody else. Now for all of us as the bride of Christ, like we kind of step in that same position in that marital embrace with the Lord. That like we are chosen for a particular role, but it doesn't mean that like only, only this group of predetermined people. It's more of a, a word that applies to the nature of the relationship rather than the number or the predetermined quality of those people. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Yes? Um, I was just coming on to this good comment about chosen in different translations, none of which I know anything about. Mm-hmm. If you read it, what if you read it, for many are called, but few have chosen, meaning that few are the ones that chose. Because mm. otherwise it implies that God or Jesus has chosen, which I think was part of the, the thing that was being brought up because it doesn't make sense or as much sense. Yes. I mean, there's also, in, in the Greek, there is a turn of phrase happening here which I also should have mentioned. So many are called, few are chosen. Um, I'm not going to remember it. Poiloi gar eisen pletoi, oligoi de eklektoi. So it's kind of this rhyming. So pletoi is called and eklektoi are chosen. And so there's this kind of rhyming play on words that's happening here in the original language that we don't get in the English, which is probably why the word chosen was chosen, because it rhymes. 
for kind of dramatic effect. There's things a lot of rabbis would do. They would speak in these kind of parabolic catchphrases. We still do this in English, right? I do it too. You know, when I say things like uh, goodness leads to gladness and sin leads to sadness, you know, these little analogies, we still use this in English, right? So this is something that he was using in the original Greek that Matthew was trying to convey as like, this is kind of a sticking point here. Like, remember this as a little kind of catchphrase, a motto, something to like macrame into your kitchen or something, you know, whatever. But otherwise, if it was meant to be more like theologically exact, yes, then another word could have been chosen. In the original Greek, though, it does say um, many, many for are called, few, however, chosen. But I think the, if I'm not mistaken, the conjugation of the verb chosen or to choose apply, it implies that it's not the few that chose, but it's the few that were chosen, I think. Well, because if everybody else has done what they need to do, like the wedding garment, mm-hmm. and he's talking to the Pharisees saying, this is your, one of your last warnings, don't the Pharisees, like everybody else that is invited off the street, have the right to go to choose and go through the process to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Which is why I said, doesn't it mean, but few choose? Yeah, you can interpret it that way. I mean, they are still being invited, and they have been invited. They've already chosen. If you're invited, that's your initial being chosen, but then you still have to choose. Yes, yeah. Yeah, part of it, I think, is a difficulty with the English definitions of those words and how they're probably different in Greek. But yeah, just like I could say, um, I dated many women, but I only chose to marry my wife. You know, that it's, it's nature of the relationship, meaning it's singular. But because we are the bride of Christ, that is both singular and collective. And so the word is being applied to the chosen nature of the relationship rather than the chosen number, if that makes sense. I think that I said that right. Yeah. Yes. Listening to you, I was thinking that there's an element of like discernment or mm-hmm. discerning what's the right garment. But then I reread it and it says, A wedding garment rather than the or like a proper wedding. Yeah. So does that imply that there there is kind of like is it is it just speak to the uniqueness of individuals and what it looks like in their lives? Or, oh yeah. Or is it like there's different you, you know what I'm getting at? Yes, yeah. So it says a wedding garment, not the wedding garment. And part of that is there's no historical precedent for a wedding garment for guests. You didn't wear something special to go to a wedding. And we have that same thing today. I mean you get dressed up but there's no specific outfit that attendees to a wedding have to wear. Who has the wedding garment? The bride, right? The bride is the one who wears something very specific. Even the groom, there's some variation. He could wear a tuxedo, he could wear a suit. The bride wears a wedding dress. And there's differences in design, but it's a wedding dress, right? And that's the same image of us as the bride of Christ. We have a wedding garment, but there are many different versions of that. And because the wedding garment here represents righteousness, the qualities that come from doing good works, from acting rightly, we can do that individually in many different ways. So our wedding garment, our path to righteousness may look different from other people's, but it doesn't mean it's not righteous. So it's still a wedding garment. There's no the wedding garment, both historically or theologically, because theologically we don't all experience doing good works and that path of salvation exactly the same way. Respond to it differently. We live it out differently but it's a matter of whether or not we do it. Every single one of us is being offered that opportunity 
but we need to respond to it. We can't just accept the invitation and change nothing. It's accepting the invitation and then clothing ourselves in the proper garment. Just like if someone proposes and the other person says yes, proposes marriage, says yes, a lot of things still need to change and be prepared for until that moment that they are married. But if you do nothing from that point forward, the wedding's never going to happen. You're just going to be engaged for decades, you know, and then you're just like common law married, I guess, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. My friend, I think that's significant because uh, in other places the gospel is since I now call you friends. Yes, yeah. So like I see that guest basically you're part of the church, right? Mm -hmm. You're a friend, right? Yeah. You may not be a friend and attorney, but in time, you know, you're a friend. And so I also see this like as this soul's particular judgment mm -hmm. because it's, it's it's clear, I think, that he, when he, you know, binds his hands and feet, that language is used, that's kind of like outside. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to stretch it, but it could be like, okay, maybe you're out of grace and you come back. Hmm. There's nothing really there indicating to me that this is like a, like a temporal him coming and going and swaying in this way. But, um, so I also saw this particular thing as like that person's particular judgment. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then, in our discussions, uh, the word that stood out to me was the silence. Mm. And I, I thought about it and they didn't respond. Yeah. Because they were just, you know, you have, you literally have nothing to say in front of God when your, you know, uh, group chat gets. <clears throat> yes. <more>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the uh, the surefire way to uh, ruin your experience of judgment is to try explaining to Jesus why you did the things that you yeah. did, you know, but, but like, you know, yeah, to try and justify it, you know. Uh, but it, yeah, it, interesting that the silence that you mentioned also mentioned Adam and Eve. It's also mentioned shortly after this in um, later in this chapter in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard and he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So there's also this kind of imagery literarily that Matthew is using to show like these people in front of him are being in this moment of kind of temporal judgment of Jesus. He's judging their character and their worthiness of the responsibilities that they've been given as people who've been invited into the covenant and have not been responsible in, in, in living up to that relationship. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And I think this absolutely has to do with judgment as well because wailing and grinding of teeth everywhere in scripture is an image for hell. And there's no coming back from hell. If you know, once you go there, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. But you are you're there. So yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But I think my difficulty is like when Jesus called Matthew, he wasn't like, "Go get your wedding garment." He was like, "No, come right now." Yeah. And so I feel like I'm having difficulty not feeling compassion for like I'm here. I'm a spiritual infant. I'm not formed yet. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I need help. Yeah. But like, can you explain that a little more? Like the person who shows up but isn't dressed yet? Yes, yeah. We have to be conscious of that, I think. Because Matthew still, he was invited to accept the invitation. Come follow me. But that invitation, using the language of that time of a rabbi to a disciple, meant you're going to come study under me to learn how to be like me, to learn how to be clothed in righteousness. And so there was still like, the invitation was part one. It was still the incomplete conversion. And he responded, but there was still more expected. And so that kind of to clarify where Matthew was in that position, but also just to recognize we don't know where anyone is in that path of conversion. 
And also recognize there could be people here who've been sitting in these pews for 50 years and they could have totally backtracked and feel like an imposter. They feel like a hypocrite. They feel like maybe I'm, I'm back at square one. I, I've ran back into my sinful desires and behaviors that I, I thought I was done with and I don't know what to do now. And so we have to be sensitive to that. Like we're all on this journey and we're all ling- like bouncing between these stages rather of like belong, believe, and behave. And we have to remember when we see a person, we can't jump to behave if we don't even know if they belong yet. And just because they're a parishioner here or they're involved in a ministry or they coordinate a ministry or they're leading a Bible study does not mean they feel like they belong yet. We don't know that until we enter into relationship with them and welcome them, listen to their story, accompany them. And then out of relationship is what spurs that desire to believe. I say this all the time, but like nobody has ever had a conversion experience because someone gave a passionate talk on the hypostatic union, like Jesus is divine in human nature. And they're like, that's it. My life's been changed. You know, like that's, that's not what captures people. No one just wanders into that experience. They get there because of a relationship, because they felt some sense of belonging or some sense of trust. And then they're given opportunities to learn how to believe. And again, only once we understand why we believe what we believe. And it's sprung from loving relationship. That's the foundation. Do we have a desire to behave a certain way? But if we don't have that sense of belonging and we just jump to belief, here's what the church teaches and here's why you have to agree with it and do it. It just sounds like rules and regulations. There's no compassion. There's no life. People don't understand the reason why because they don't have a relationship. They don't have a trusting relationship with someone who is a Christian or with God himself yet. And so anything that looks like belief is just going to be memorization of information. That's all it's going to be. And so I think it's just recognizing, like, we can't assume anyone who's in front of us. We can't assume where they are on that journey. So where do we always start? Loving people into relationship with Jesus. Welcoming them as they are. I always say this. I can't remember who I got it from, but you don't have to. I think it's probably Father Mike Schmitz. You don't have to change in order for God to love you. But God's love will change you. And that first part is all about inviting people into belonging. You don't need to change to be here. You know, I was listening to Father Josh Johnson on his podcast this past week. That's who said that. That's who said this. There's too many podcasts. They all blend together. Um, he's the one that's talking about behaving. But he's talking about this young woman who, was, who uh, went away for, for the summer at college. I think this was him. Now I'm all confused. But she went away from the summer and all of her friends stayed behind and got involved in campus ministry and had these conversion experiences and were coming to Bible study. And she comes back and she's like, why are you all like Christians now? Like, I have no one to hang out with. And they're like, well, come to Bible study. So she was like, I'm just here because all my friends are here and I don't want to lose my friends. I don't want to make a bunch of new friends. Like we've known each other all through college so far, but I just need you to know, like, I'm not interested in this. And so Father Josh was like, that's fine. You're welcome here. I hope you come back. And that's just all he did is he kept inviting, kept helping her feel like she belonged. And then all of a sudden she started coming on retreat. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm only going because my friends are going. She's like, that's okay. I'm so glad that you came. I hope you, I hope you enjoy it. And continued to feel that sense of belonging. And then once she'd been going to all this stuff, she started saying like, you know, a lot of these things you've been saying make a lot of sense. Believe. Starts to believe what she is hearing. And then and only then, once that sunk in, did it compel her to behave differently. And then desire to fully enter the church, to become a disciple, to receive the sacraments. And so we have to have that always in mind. And I think it's important for us individually and also us as a church collectively. Like when we see people wandering in to Mass, maybe they're there for the very first time. 
Maybe they're wandering in late and they have no idea what's going on. And they come to a pew and they look for a seat. And do they see someone like, ugh, like scoff at them? Or do they see someone move out of the way or scoot in and say, please, come sit. I'm so glad you're here. And after Mass is over, do the people around them say, hey, you look new here. Can we take you out to breakfast? Or you want to come over to the hall for some fellowship? We'd love to get to know you. Is this your first time here? We're known as being the friendly parish. So says Yelp, or wherever I saw that review. Okay? That's what we're known for. But I think too often that's gets, that gets relegated to, we do a lot of fun social things here. But who do we do them for? Us. Us. None of that is going out to the margins to find those people, to make them come and feel welcome. Maybe there's other things going on here that are more social, more playful, that they're like, oh, I'll come to that. I'm not going to come to Mass, but I'll come to like the concert that's going on this weekend. That could be a great evangelization opportunity for people who would never come here for Jesus, but they'll come for Leonard Skinner. Like, who knows? You know? So who knows? But we have to receive them with joy. Receive them with welcome. Receive them as they are and not expect them, once they step on foot of this campus, to totally agree with everything that we teach. To accept them in the struggle, in the tension, in the places where they are like, absolutely not, I don't want to be here. Great, well, I think you should keep coming because we, we'd love to have you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for showing up. Do we have that mentality? I think it can be very convicting when we think about our interactions that we've had maybe over the past year or two or a lifetime as Christians. We can jump too quickly to conclusions. Other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? Greg. One thing I have here is uh, at the very end, it says, bring your confidence, you are chosen. Mm -hmm. And so the servants go out and bring all these people in, but only one guy gets kicked out. Mm -hmm. And we always hear that so many people are called, but like just what they say in here, that very few people respond. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's more like everybody should be kicked out, one or two people should be kicked out. <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't understand. Seems it should, it should have been reversed a little bit about how many people stayed and how many people went out. Yeah, which is also another piece of evidence for why that wording is chosen more for a turn of phrase than actually being numerically exact. Because it would be like many are called, all but one are chosen. You know, would be more accurate to the story, right? Um, but Jesus uses the same language earlier in the gospel when he talks about, let's see, Matthew seven, verses thirteen through fourteen in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, "Enter through the narrow gate." For the gate is wide and the, broad, the road broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life. And those who find it are few. A warning about the fact that we can't assume that any of us are just have some automatic way into heaven. In fact, in the catechism, it says that's a sin against the virtue of hope. The two sins in the catechism against the virtue of hope are despair, losing hope, and presumption, presuming you have more hope than you deserve. I presume that I've done all the things that I need to do to get to heaven, and so I'll look down my nose at all these other sinners, but I know where I'm going. I'm taking the, the narrow path. Well, you don't know that. You have no idea. None of us do. There's no guarantee. Yes, like we know that we have the gift of salvation from baptism, but we don't believe in eternal security. We believe you can lose that gift of salvation when you sin and separate yourself from God and you live in separation from him. So we all have to be wary. 
we all have to be warned against this incomplete conversion and constantly be turning back, turning back, pursuing Jesus. Not because he's harsh, but because he's just. He's fair. And if my wife stood across from me on our wedding day and I said, I do, and she was like, I think I do, that wouldn't have been a good sign. And that wouldn't have been a legitimate sacramental marriage. You have to give yourself to one another freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. That's the form of the sacrament of marriage. Same thing is true in our relationship with God. We cannot do it halfway. We cannot. It's like the quote I shared with you, I think from T.S. Eliot, that uh, the Christian condition is one of complete simplicity costing no less than everything. No less than everything. That's what it costs. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for this word. Thank you for this time to challenge us, to hopefully inspire us, to continue to strive and persevere forward on this path of conversion, that we have never and will never arrive at conversion. It is constantly a journey that we are making faithfully toward you in prayer and good works through the grace of the sacraments. So we pray, God, that we would be faithful to you each day and recognize everyone we meet is in a different place on that journey. And so give us the gift of seeing from other perspectives, understanding and being willing to listen instead of judge or teach or correct, to welcome people with compassion and be patient with them, to be willing to not have to see the light bulb go off, but simply allow our relationship or our interaction with them to be one step on that journey and to let it be a positive one that leads them to the next. Give us the gifts that we need to minister well, to share our faith well, to be compassionate and loving, and to not jump to conclusions, because we would hope no one would do that about us. We pray, God, for the gift of deep faith, and we thank you, Lord, for the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Help us each and every day to accept that invitation and to clothe ourselves in righteousness by doing good works, by responding to you in faith and prayer, by coming to you and experiencing your grace in the sacraments, and by avoiding the near occasion of sin. We pray, Lord, that you help us grow in faith in you and in community with one another so that we all can enter that narrow gate together. We pray all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh.